Would you take your Bibles this morning, open them to Psalm 100? Today we're looking at a well-known psalm, Psalm 100. So would you please stand in honor of God's word as it is read this morning? And before I read it, would you pray with me the prayer on the screen? Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Amen. Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Amen. You may be seated. What brings enthusiasm to church worship? Have you ever thought about that? What brings enthusiasm to church worship? Ray Stevens, in a song recorded years ago, had a suggestion on what brings a little enthusiasm to church worship. He wrote a song about a Mississippi squirrel in the little town of Pascagoula, where my pastor's wife, when I lived in Mississippi, was from. Maybe you've heard it. It goes, the lyrics go like this. Well, when I was a kid, I'd take a trip every summer down to Mississippi to visit my granny and her Aunt Bellum world. I'd run barefooted all day long, climbing trees free as a song. One day I happened to catch myself a squirrel. I stuffed him down in an old shoe box, punched a couple of holes in the top. When Sunday came, I snuck him into church. I was sitting way back in the very last pew, showing him to my good buddy Hugh, when that squirrel got loose and went totally berserk. Well, what happened next is hard to tell. Some thought it was heaven and others thought it was hell. But the fact that something was among us was plain to see. As the choir sang, I surrender all, the squirrel ran up Harvey Newall's coveralls. Harvey leaped to his feet and said, something's got a hold on me. The chorus goes like this. The day the squirrel went berserk in the first self-righteous church in the sleepy little town of Pascagoula. It was a fight for survival that broke out in revival. They were jumping pews and shouting hallelujah. Well, Harv hit the aisle dancing and screaming. Some thought he had religion. Others thought he had a demon. And Harv thought he had a weed eater loose in his fruit of the looms. He fell to his knees to plead and beg, and the squirrel ran out of his britch's leg, unobserved to the other side of the room. All the way down to the amen pew where sat Sister Bertha better than you, who'd been watching all the commotion with sadistic glee. But you should have seen the look in her eyes when that squirrel jumped her garters and crossed her thighs. She jumped to her feet and said, Lord, have mercy on me. As the squirrel made laps inside her dress, she began to cry and then to confess the sins that would make the sailor blush with shame. She told a gossip and church dissension, but the thing that got the most attention was when she talked about her love life and started naming names. The day the squirrel went berserk in the first self-righteous church in that sleepy little town of Pascagoula, it was a fight for survival that broke out in revival. They were jumping pews and shouting hallelujah. Well, seven deacons and the pastor got saved and $25,000 got raised. 
and 50 volunteers from missions in the Congo on the spot. And even without an invitation, there were at least 500 rededications, and we all got rebaptized, whether we needed it or not. Now, you've heard the Bible stories, I guess, of how he parted the waters from Moses to pass, all the miracles God has brought to this old world. But the one I'll remember to my dying day is how he put that church back on the narrow way with a half-crazed Mississippi squirrel. The day the squirrel went berserk in the first self-righteous church of that sleepy little town in Pascagoula, it was a fighting for survival that broke out in revival. They were jumping pews and shouting, Hallelujah. What brings enthusiasm to church worship? A squirrel will do it. Believe it or not, I had a chip, never had a squirrel, but I had a chipmunk show up at a CE meeting once. I did. I had one lady screaming at the top of her lungs, another lady standing on top of the chair, and two guys running around trying to step on it. You've never seen things get so lively as when you introduce live varmints into the scene. Well, today God wants us to discover the proper source for enthusiasm in our worship. What should biblically bring enthusiasm to the people of God as we gather together to worship? To do that, we're just going to discover two simple things in the text. And the first is this. Worship can be enthusiastic. Now, that may catch you by surprise because oftentimes when we talk to people about church, eyes kind of roll back, people think of taking short naps, and we just wonder, is it really that exciting to be a part of? It reminds me of the story of the little boy when church was done one day. He was in the car riding home with his mom, and he asked his mom, he said, Mom, how high can you count? And she said, well, I don't know. I've never tried. And he said, well, you think you can count to 10? And she said, well, yeah, I can count to 10. And she said, well, what about 100? He said, well, yeah, I can count to 100. He said, Mom, do you think you could count to 1,000? She said, I can count to 1,000. What about 10,000? She said, yeah. I said, I don't know if I'd want to sit there that long, but I could count to 10,000. He goes, wow, that's higher than I can count. So she asked her son, well, how high can you count? He said, well, I can count to 5,762. She said, 5,762, that's a very specific number. How do you know you can count that high? She said, well, I've been counting, and that's what time the church service ended from the time it began, and I got to 5,762. You've been in some of those services, haven't you? Where you sat there, and you just wondered how long it was going to go. I would, I've been in them, too. I've been the cause of some of them, too. I remember once where, uh, when I was in seminary, they decided to have a missions conference, and they invited a missionary to come and to speak, and he had a lifetime of stories to share and Bible insights to share and decided to share most of them in one service. And so, no joke, after an hour and 30 minutes, he was still preaching. An hour and 30 minutes. And then, and, and while he was preaching, you, you could, after the first hour passed, people didn't want to be rude, but people had, you know, they had to get home, they had to get to bed, they had jobs, they got two different things. And you just see people, people quietly just stand up and slip out a door there, stand up, slip out a door, and out a door. And, and the crowd was dwindling. And after an hour and a half, he stopped and he looked up and he said, should I tell another story? And at that moment, all of us seminary students, we have been trained, we know what to do. You just sit there and you smile through your teeth and you just wait and just... That's what we're, you know, you sit there and you be quiet. And we're all sitting there quiet when one of the Bible professors in the third row, he says, should I tell another story? He raises his hand and he goes, no. <laughs> the speaker looked at him and went, hmm, I remember when, 
And he started in another half hour of preaching. He went over two hours in that sermon. Yeah, we've been in, and you've been in some of those services that go on and on. And you think, is there really enthusiasm in church? And sometimes we're tempted to think that, no, church is a rather dull and boring place. But when we read Psalm 100, we discover something. We discover that worship can and should be enthusiastic. Do you notice all the verbs piled up here? And notice they're not just options, they're commands, they're in the imperative. It says, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. It says, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Some of you, you've been in services where the songs you sing are less than joyful. And there's no problem with singing songs that are in the minor key and that are serious. But I remember I had a professor of New Testament. He started every class the same way. Uh, to get everybody together and attention focused, he'd walk in and he'd start singing a hymn. And he'd print it out at the beginning of the semester and say, this is the hymn for the semester. Every class will begin singing this hymn. And that's how we would start. And he picked one called Jesus Priceless Treasure. How many of you know that? Anybody know that? One of you? Yep. Two of you? Yep. That's, about, and that's more than what knew it in the class. I never heard it before, but we sang it every class. And one of the professors would walk down the, uh, down the hallway and just shake his head when he'd go by the door because there was always this minor key song that he would sing. Jesus, priceless treasure, source of purest pleasure, truest friend to me. And it had deep meaning to him. But it was just kind of, oh, now we're ready to go. And we would sing the whole thing, all the verses, sang it all the way through. And we sang it enough times in one semester that I still remember all of verse 1 to this day. That's the only time I sang it up till then. It's the only time I've sang it since then. But I remember it. And you wonder sometimes, is there enthusiasm? But Psalm 100 says, shout, worship, kneel before him with joyful songs. In verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Praise his name. Worship should be enthusiastic. Now that doesn't always mean it has to be loud. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to be fast. What it means though is that worship should have passion and there should be the joy of God's people when the opportunity comes to gather together and to worship the Lord together. The question though before us is why? Why should we engage in enthusiastic worship? What is the proper source and motivation for that worship? And this psalm makes it clear. Because not only do, do we discover that worship can be enthusiastic, but we also discover that worship is enthusiastic not because of us or the songs we sing or the scriptures read or the announcements given or the question that we greet each other with. It's enthusiastic because of the one being worshipped. Our enthusiasm comes because of God. And this passage highlights three areas about God that should be an enthusiastic motivator for God's people. The first is this. We should be enthused because of the nature of the Lord. In this verse after it says, shout to the Lord all the earth, worship the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful songs. Verse 3 says, know that the Lord is God. We should be enthused to know that the Lord is God. 
Now, those words are important. First, it says the Lord, and then it says the term God. The Lord is from the name Yahweh in the Old Testament, which is the covenant name of God, the name by which God established his relationship with his people in the Old Testament. And so when the psalmist says, know that the Lord, he's saying to them, know that your God, the God we worship, the God we've gathered together for, know that your God, your Lord is the God. And so it says here, know that the Lord, which is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, know that the Lord is God. Now the term God there is a different term. We have there, scholars tell us, the term Elohim, which that focuses on the supremacy of God and the power of God. It's the name of God used in Genesis chapter 1 when it says, in the beginning God created And so this is the powerful, transcendent God overall. And what the psalmist is saying is that the God of Israel, the God who called Abraham, the God who met Moses on Mount Sinai, the God that delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea, the God that took them into the Promised Land, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of King David and King Solomon, that the God of the Israelites is the one and true God of the universe. He is the one who reigns supreme over all, which means that all the other gods are false gods in the ancient world. So as you read through the Bible, you'll come across the gods of Ashtoreth. You'll read about Baal or Chemosh or Dagon or Re or Marduk. All of these other nations, all the gods they worship, the psalmist says, you can rejoice, O Israel, because your God is, Yahweh is the true God. And that is true for us today as we continue in the biblical story. Our God is the true God who reigns over all. And God's people should find great enthusiasm from the greatness of our Lord. Like the Chris Tomlin song that became so popular, How Great is Our God. And it says, Know that the Lord is God. When the Bible talks about knowing It doesn't just mean, okay, I got that fact. I wrote the note down in my sermon notes. I'm ready. I'm good to go. I understand that the covenant God is the supreme God, and he's my God. That's great. But to say, to know that means not only that you can acknowledge it, but that you then live it out in your life, that he has become your supreme God, that he is the God of your life, and you understand not only is this a universal truth, but it has become you know, a personal truth within your own heart. And when you know God and you know how great he is, there is an enthusiasm that comes when you have the opportunity to worship him with his people. So worship is enthusiastic because of the nature of the Lord. In this passage, it highlights another truth, that worship is enthusiastic because of the work of the Lord. It goes on to say, not only know that the Lord is God, it says, it is he who made us and we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. It is he who made us. Now when you first read that, maybe your first thought is to go back to Genesis where it talks about God making Adam and then Eve out of the rib of Adam. Or it says, God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. 
And that's true. We could pause and say one of the reasons why we praise God is because he is the one who made us, who has created us and given us life. But the terminology here is even more specific. Because it's used the covenant name of God in the phrase before where it says, know that the Lord, the name Yahweh is God, when it says it is he who made us, we are his, it's referring not just to Genesis, but it's referring to what God did to create the people of Israel. He made Israel. He made the people of God. It was him who called Abraham and said, leave your father and your country and your people and go to the land I will show you and I will make you. Did you catch that? I will make you, he told Abraham, into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And so, We discover that God made Israel. God establishes his covenant. We went through the Ten Commandments, the core of the, uh, what you might call the core of God's covenant with his people, what would define Israel as the holy people of God, and what would define God and the relationship of what he expected from them. And we see that God has made Israel. He called them. He has defined who they will be. He has defined the land that they would live in. And what's true is that it's still true of the church to this day. God has created us. You know, some of us might think that Gospel Center Missionary Church is here because actually there was a a group that met here before um, Pastor Everest was here. There was a small group here, and then he came. And he was a man blessed of God, and God used him mightily. But we must always realize this. It's never a pastor It's never a board. It's never even the hard work of the people. Ultimately, the first reason why any church exists is because God has called a group of people together. And the reason you're here today isn't by accident. It's because God has called you to this place, to this particular group of people this day, to worship him and to magnify his name. And so we, along with Israel, can say, it is he who made us. We are his gospel center, not the building I'm referring to, but we the people, the church, which is the people of God, we belong to him. It says we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And here we have the shepherd terminology mixed in there. They're saying because God has made us, he's defined us as his people, therefore we are his. And now the, the image used, the illustration is that of being sheep and a shepherd and so that's because god is the one who provides for his people god is the one who leads his people god is the one who guides his people and so he is the shepherd of israel he's also the shepherd of us even to this day in fact interestingly in the old testament the king of israel was often described as the shepherd over the people because it was the king who was to guide to lead, to provide, to direct the nation of Israel. So when, God, so when the text says here that we are his people, the sheep of his pasture, it's not just a shepherding terminology, but it's the way the good and perfect king of the universe cares for his people. The king of kings cares for his people like a shepherd cares for his sheep. And so that was the way a king was to rule over his people. And so we have enthusiasm in worship when we discover first the nature of God. We realize how great God is. 
Second of all, we have enthusiasm for worship when we discover the work of the Lord. And that work we talked about in the Old Testament with Abraham and Moses and the covenant, but realize that it comes down to the God of the universe sending his very own son to die on a cross that we might be adopted as children of the Most High God. And as John says, do you realize what you are? You are children of the Most High God. You belong to God because of Jesus Christ. I think, I think of all the families I know, I think of my own family, of, of my sister. They have two adopted kids. And I think of some friends of ours uh, um, from seminary days, um, Brad and Meg. They have two adopted kids and two natural-born children, two adopted children. And I remember they said one time, they said their adopted kids said, do you love us? And they looked at him and said, they said, you know what? We have two kids and we praise God for them. He said, but we didn't get to pick them out. He said, we want you to know we picked you and we chose you because we love you. He said, you are special to us. We have been chosen by the most high God. You are wanted by God Almighty and he has sent his son to make you his own. That by his blood, you might be sons and daughters of God. And that should be a reason for enthusiasm when we gather together to worship the Lord. So we are awed by the nature of the Lord. We are struck by the work of the Lord, that work creating us as his people, adopting us as his children, as we discover in the New Testament. And then finally in this passage, we see that enthusiasm comes when we discover the character of the Lord. Verse 5 says, after it's told us to enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name. Why do we do that? For the Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. You see three, we could, you could go on about the character of God and the attributes of God, but you see three things listed here. You see first that he is good. The God that we serve is a good God. You do not have to doubt his goodness. Life may be difficult. Life may be full of sin and impacted by sin. But the God of the universe is a good God. He always desires what is right. And he cares about what is best for you. Corey Tenboom writes, and Corey Tenboom was a Christian who lived during World War II in Nazi Germany. She and her family worked to save Jews, hiding them in her home. Eventually, she was arrested and taken into a, pro a concentration camp. After she was released, she wrote this. She said, often I've heard people say, how good God is. We prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic. And look, the lovely weather that we have as an example. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather. But God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in the German concentration camp. I remember on one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark and there was darkness in my heart. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, said Betsy. He has not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Corey concluded, there is an ocean of God's love available that is plenty for everyone. May God grant you never doubt that victorious love, his, un, 
unfathomable goodness, whatever the circumstances may be. The circumstances of life may be terrible, but know this today. The God you've gathered to worship this day, the God you have sung about, the God you have prayed to this morning is a good God. That is his character. Not only that, but we discover here that his love endures forever. His love endures forever. It never runs out. It never reaches a limit. You can never exhaust the love of God. You can never go so far or do something that's so bad that you say, God, do you love me now? Because whenever you come back and say, God, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? The love of God is there. There's never a generation that raises up that says, well, God may have loved the people of the past, but he doesn't love the people of today. And we discover in Scripture, no, his love endures forever from generation to generation to generation through all of life his love is steadfast and that's because his love isn't just based on an emotion for us oftentimes when we talk about love in our culture we think of emotions and emotions they come and go but we discover that god has chosen to love his people even when we are still in sin, even when we were separated from him, God first loved us because God has chosen to love his creation and to offer them redemption. His steadfast love, his love endures forever. So we see that the Lord is good. We see that he is loving. And finally, we see that he is faithful. His faithfulness continues through all generations. We sing about that, don't we, in the old hymn? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Psalm 100 is a call to enthusiastic worship. But it's enthusiastic worship that is enthused by the one who is worshipped. And so the point today is this. Discover enthusiasm for worship by discovering a delight in God. You want to know something? If you don't delight in God, you will never delight in worship. You may be wowed by a program. You may think something is neat. You may think something is cool. You may even find something to be moving, but you will never delight your heart in worship unless your heart learns to delight itself in God. Now, maybe you're wondering, how in the world do we delight ourselves in God? I think first and foremost, we have to realize this. That takes a change of heart that it takes the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our souls to give us truly a delight, a love for God. Because left to ourselves and just to our own abilities, we naturally love ourselves, And we're not interested in God. We are spiritually dead apart from the work of the Holy Spirit quickening us and drawing us. And so I think it takes a work of God. I told you earlier in the service about 
about the missions conference and the preacher going on for what was two hours in the service and about the Bible professor, I didn't name his name, but uh, raising his hand and as loud for everyone in the entire room to hear, a room that could see, you know, 800 people going, no! You want to know what was crazy? On Sunday, he walked in the church and he said, I got to tell you something. He said, that was the longest, most boring conference I have ever been to in my life. He said, but God did a revival work in my heart. He said, I, would, I didn't expect a thing out of that conference. He said, but I have a new enthusiasm. I have a new love for God. I have a new appreciation for what God has done in my life and heart. And he said, and I don't even know why. It wasn't any message. It wasn't anything. He said, but God lit me on fire this week. And I think that is one where it starts, that if we want to have enthusiasm for worship, we must ask God to set our hearts on fire for him. Because left to ourselves, we won't get there. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't take steps and put ourselves in a place for the Holy Spirit to work. But apart from the Holy Spirit, we will lack the enthusiasm that is biblical. Enthusiasm that is rooted in who God is for worship. So it starts with prayer and asking God to quicken our hearts. But I do think there are steps we could take. Steps to remove barriers to the work of the Holy Spirit when it comes to worshiping and loving God. So let me just give you, these are just ideas off the top of my head. They're not biblical, so you can just throw them in the trash. They're just John Rainus's ideas, which aren't worth much of anything. But, um, but I found some of them to be true in my own life. One of them is this. If I want the Holy Spirit to enthuse me about worship, I have to go to bed on time on Saturday. I don't know about you. Hey, have you, ever, have you ever been in a prayer meeting and fallen asleep during it because you haven't had enough sleep? Now, I will say this. I've known some great preachers over the years who they're like, people just pray too long, and it gets too long-winded. And so um, it was said of one great preacher once, when somebody started praying too long, he'd just break into a song and start singing and ask the, ask the team to come up and get going because it got too long in the service. But go to bed on Saturday so that you're well-rested. Because the truth is this. If you're tired when you come in the church, if you're tired when the alarm clock goes off on Sunday morning, then you're going to have a hard time being excited about worshiping God with his people. So part of worshiping on Sunday is getting ready on Saturday. Also, realize this. You have to deal with sin in your life. If you have sin, the psalmist says, if I had harbored sin in my heart, you would not have listened to my prayer. It is hard to be enthused about a God who is holy and righteous and good when we harbor sin in our life. And so we have to deal with sin. Also, we have to deal with unresolved conflict. Didn't Jesus say that if you're at the altar offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. And so it's a really hard thing to be excited about worship when you sit on one side of the sanctuary and that person who's sitting on the other side of the sanctuary, you're thinking, man, I hope I don't have to talk to them this Sunday. I've really got problems with that person this Sunday. Well, God would say, you know what? Go deal with those problems and that person so that you can eventually then come and worship me. Because we have to deal with our conflicts if we want God to be able to stir an enthusiasm in our hearts. There's things you can do. There are disciplines you can engage in also, I believe, for God to create an enthusiasm for worship. 
One of them is this. If you want to have enthusiasm for worship on Sunday morning, then you have to worship God Monday through Saturday as well. If you don't spend time with God during the week, then you're not going to be excited about spending time with him on Saturday. If you want to keep your distance from him during the week, then it's easier to stay in bed on Sunday morning than to come to church. Another thing is this. When you get up on Sunday morning, assume that you're going to spend some time praying and worshiping before you get to church. Now, those of you who have a long drive in, I realize that sometimes you wish you didn't have a long drive, but there is a blessing of a long drive, is that you can use that to prepare your own heart for worship. So I was blessed as a kid growing up. Uh, we had a long drive. We drove 30 minutes every Sunday morning to church. My parents still drive 30 minutes to go to church. I, I, I think my mom and dad don't like to do anything unless it's at least a 30-minute or more drive. Um, and driving just, that time just doesn't count to them in their day. They're just happy to do it. They're like, oh, I'll go drive an hour to eat lunch and come back. Uh, my wife can call and say, hey, would you find, see if, you know, Walmart has this gift. They're sold out here. It's Christmas time. My mom's like, well, sure. So she'll drive to Saginaw, where we live, and then she'll drive to Bay City, and then she'll drive to Midland. She'll go to all different ones and say, I didn't find it at any of them. I'm like, Mom, you could have just called. Oh, I'd just rather drive. It's okay. But one thing Mom and Dad did is when we drove to church on Sunday morning, we got in the car, we started the car, and the first thing we did is everyone took a turn praying that God would bless the worship service. We prayed for the pastor. We prayed for the worship team. We prayed for all the people who served. Not necessarily by name, but we just prayed for God to come and move on Sunday. And then when we were done praying, we still had 20 minutes to go. They weren't necessarily long prayers. Um, when we were done praying, then they would just turn music on, and we would sing as a family and praise God the entire rest of the way to church on Sunday morning. And, and by the time we walked in, we had been worshiping before we walked in the door and you want to know what? It's church is a lot more enthusiastic when your worship has already begun than when somebody has to encourage you to start worshiping when you show up at church on Sunday. And it doesn't matter. I only have an eight-minute drive now, so I realize my worship has to begin at home before I get here. But worship before you come to church on Sunday. Another thing you can do when you walk in the church, remember, it's not about you. It is about God and the people he's put you with but it's not about you on Sunday morning. It's about what you can give, not what you can get. And then finally, just the simplest advice at all, when you go to a worship service, any worship service at all, participate. I know that may sound kind of ridiculous, but I remember uh, talking with a friend of mine and he was going to a concert and I said, well, what do you do at these concerts? Because he went to concerts all the time. He said, well, I just stand there at the back wall and I like to watch. So you don't sing, you don't go jump at the front of the concert, do anything. No, I just like stand and watch. And some people do church that way. They show up at church and they just like to stand and watch. And you think, well, I don't really like to sing. Who cares? You will have more fun in worship if you sing. I know you may not sing well. I know it may not be your gift. You don't have to try to sing the loudest of anyone in the church. But you will enjoy songs more if you realize God loves it when you sing. He's called you to sing. You think, I don't like prayer time. I don't like it when the pastor takes time to prayer. That is the most boring part of the service. At least in my opinion growing up, the pastoral prayer is the absolute most boring aspect of the church worship service in, in my childhood opinion when I was growing up. That's why I would sit there with my stopwatch and we would time the pastor's prayers because there was nothing else to do. It was awful. 
You know what I've discovered? You are to pray during that time. You can bring your prayer list to church and you should be praying when the pastor wraps up because he knows some of you are falling asleep. Some of you should be saying, I'm not through my prayer list yet. I haven't finished telling God how wonderful he is because you are praying while the pastor is praying. And I've learned that it's one of the greatest benefits a pastor has is to pray for his people and to lift them before the throne of grace. And so I value the time of pastoral prayer because pastors, I think good shepherds over their flock, pray for their people and lift them before God. Participate. When there's an offering, it means more when you put something in it and participate in it. When a pastor preaches, you can take notes. If that helps you, some of you aren't note takers. My father wouldn't be a note taker. But whatever helps you engage in the sermon and listen to what it said, have your Bible open, read through the passage. Maybe you like to mark in your Bible as, as it reads along. But participate in the worship. Those are things we can do from a human perspective. But what we have to remember is this, is that enthusiasm from worship is found from a delight in God. Our enthusiasm for worship is found in a delight for God. If you love God, you won't have any struggle worshiping God. That's not to say there aren't boring worship services. There aren't the, that isn't to say there aren't some that won't go on too long. That isn't to say that some of you right now may not be looking at your watch and your stomach may be growling. But it's to say this, the heart of worship is rooted in a love for God. As Jesus said, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we do that, there is an enthusiasm that comes when we get to gather with God's people to worship him. So I figured maybe the best way to wrap up the service is to declare, because worship is rooted in who God is, for us to declare who God is as the people of God. And so to do that, we're going to have a call and a response, all right? It's very simple. You may have heard this before, but I'm going to say God is good, and you're going to respond by saying all the time. And I'm going to say all the time, and you're going to say God is good, all right? Because we discover in this passage the goodness of God. It's one of the reasons why God's people are excited to worship him. So God is good. And all the time. God is good. And all the time. All right, now you're... You got it down. So now we're going to do a competition. I don't know if competition is part of a biblical aspect of worship, but as a kid, it was part of kids' church. We did it with Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Remember that? So over here, you have God is good. You start us off. This side, so you have God is good. You guys, all the time. They're going to say, now you're going to say all the time. You're going to say God is good. You got that? All right, we'll practice. Ready? Now, do you want to know which side was louder? Do you know how to solve that? This side, you need to invite more people to church. <laughs> Just that simple. They have more people, I know, so all I got to do is invite more people and you will beat them, all right? So uh, on your feet, Gospel Center. Ready?
God is good all the time. His people should delight in God and therefore be enthused to worship the God of heaven. He is our God, and he is good all the time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us a delight in who you are. Give us a delight in the work you have done. Give us a delight in your attributes. And may we stand amazed and may our hearts love and long to worship you with your people. And when people walk in gospel center into this building, may they encounter a people enthused about the worship of almighty God. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship God by singing together. I'm so thankful for humble people who are willing to let me sing and talk.